I've noticed a lot of people look like they've lost weight. Yeah. You have? How, how much weight have you lost? My goodness. That's wonderful. Someone else told me they lost 71 pounds. So the, It's good to see everyone here tonight. Amen. If I get any closer, I'm going to be right up there on your lap. Aren't I? <laughs> Amen. How many enjoyed Sister Arthur's teaching last Wednesday? She's not even in here right now, is she? <laughs> I guess I'll have to do that again. <laughs> But I want to uh, talk a little bit about decisions uh, that we make. Everybody say decisions. How many knows uh, that you've needed to make a decision, but you procrastinate procrastinate on making a decision? That's the that's the word I was looking for. You might be in that particular spot right now needing to make a decision, but you are procrastinating making the decision. And I want to talk to us about the three different steps, and uh, I want to look at some people in the Bible that uh, decided what they were going to do. The first decision that you can make is to operate in fear. How many's ever heard or thought you heard of something and all these thoughts went through your mind. Someone came to you on the job and said, did you hear that they're getting ready to cut all these positions? How many's ever heard something like that? You know, the rumor mill goes through, and it's like a, a plague that goes through the, the, the company. So you take your break, and you walk over to this person, and you, you say, hey, did you hear? They're cutting positions and laying off. And so all the, the fears and you think, man, I just bought that new car. <laughs> Christmas is coming up. And so you can decide to live in fear. Make a decision out of based on fear. Decisions based on fear usually bring very bad results. I want to look at an individual who you know very well in the scripture and he decided that he was going to make a decision based on fear. If you turn your Bibles with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 12. Genesis, chapter 12. A very famous portion of Scripture reading from verse 10. And there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there. He was going to live there for a while. For the fam famine was grievous in the land. And it came to pass, when he was come near to enter into Egypt, that he said unto Sarah, his wife. So he's not even there yet. 
Let's look at this. Let's analyze this passage of Scripture. This is something he's not even in Egypt. There is nothing has happened so far that we know of. He just starts imagining things. How many has ever imagined things? And it's not even happened. No one has said anything. Nothing has been done. And he is already setting himself up to walk and live in fear. So he says to his wife in verse 10, 11, And it came to pass when he was come near to enter into Egypt that he said unto Sarai, his wife, Behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass when the Egyptians... Now he's making these predications on nothing really. He's just he's, um, making these assumptions that this is what's going to happen. When these Egyptians see you that they shall say, This is his wife and they will kill me, but they will save thee alive. Verse 13 says, Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well (coughs) with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. Now, the Scripture says in the New Testament that all the passages in the, the Bible are written for our example and for our admonition and learning. We can learn from Abraham here. We know that he is called the father of the faithful, that he is an individual that we base uh, a lot of our faith and trust upon because of how he lived and how he found God to be true to his promises. But here we see that Abraham is not really this shining example of trust. He is showing us what not to do. Uh, And I want to say this, that you may feel like you're in a position that Abraham is, as we read right here now, that you've made some bad decisions. I will say that Abraham changes his ways. He does learn. He does make amends. He does uh, uh, cause God by his actions to make changes in his life. I think the greatest struggle... uh, I know I have as a believer, is not wanting to stay the same. I have this constant internal struggle within me. Is uh, I, I don't like this monotony. I want something to go on. I want something to happen. I want something to grow. And it really, <clears throat> it really disturbs me. It disturbs my spirit when I see people holding on to the status quo. Rather than reaching forward, and, and instead of... Uh, Abraham could have stayed in this position. He could have stayed in this lifestyle of fear. And I see some people that they're, they have been in a lifestyle of fear so long that they don't know anything else but to live in a lifestyle of fear. So Abraham here, he makes, Abram, as his name is uh, still called here, makes a decision to tell his wife that she will tell others, uh, we're just brother and sister. When in fact, he is stretching the truth um, because although she is his half-sister, he is legally married to her as husband and wife. So he's not telling the whole truth. How many is just segueing down this little path and trail here? um, 
you know that it, it, the word, how many knows what the word prevaricate means? Prevaricate means if somebody asks you a question, you don't give them the answer. You start around this little round robin trail and you don't, you don't really want to answer because you know the answer is going to bring uh, consequences to yourself. So you, as the word look, you might look it up in the dictionary, you prevaricate. You, won't, you don't give a straight answer. And so I, I, we do this with our children sometimes because they learn very quickly how to use this uh, method. And, and you, you say, hey, listen, you're not answering my question. Answer the question, did you or did you not? Yes or no? Just tell me, yes or no? That's all I'm looking for. And here, Abram starts prevaricating to, he plans, he makes plans out of fear to prevaricate to the Egyptians. So we haven't even seen the Egyptians yet, but when you see them, you tell them this. You're setting yourself up for failure. Amen. The second individual that I really want to look at here in um, deciding out of fear, his name is Pilate. You know him. He's the governor of Judea. If you look in the book of Matthew, chapter 27. Matthew, chapter 27. And verse, we will read verse 19 and read down to verse 26, 19. When he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. We could really spend a lot of time in talking about how uh, Pilate's wife who we don't know even know her name, and this is the only verse of Scripture that we know of that even refers to her, but she sends him a warning saying, don't have anything to do with this just man because I have suffered a lot in a dream. So here, Pilate is receiving a warning not to even get involved in making a judgment against Jesus. He says, and she, uh, the scripture goes on, but verse 20, but the chief priest and the elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. 21, the, ver- the governor answered and said unto them, whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate saith unto them, what shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? Now, he's asking them, and he is the governor. He is the one that really is supposed to make decisions. But he has received a warning from his wife, and so now he's going to prevaricate. <laughs> he's going to backpedal. Instead of him making the decision which Rome has sent him there to be the judge, to be the governor, to be the decider in difficult circumstances, he asked the mob, he asked the crowd, what do you want me to do? And they all say unto him, let him be crucified. And the governor said, why, what evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, saying, let him be crucified. 
When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but rather a tumult was made, in other words, a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood if this just person see ye to it. Well, I've always thought that's such a weak position because he, in fact, did make a decision. He is trying to put off on someone else the decision that he made. Uh, it, it's really uh, operating in fear, and we see the decisions that individuals make when they walk and live in fear. Verse 25, then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Verse 26, then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now, the Jews could not crucify anybody. They could not put anyone to death without the approval of Rome. They could judge someone under the, the uh, Mosaic law and judge them ceremonial un, un, ceremonially unclean, but they could not judge anyone to death. And they had to have the, a Roman governor or procurator or someone that has, was appointed by Rome to give this sentence. And so... He, by this little simple act of washing his hands and saying, I'm going to make this decision, but I'm going to place the responsibility on you. Here we see an individual that is operating out of fear. I, I really want to help us today to instruct us. A lot of decisions in life are made because we might uh, be concerned and the, of the unknown. Amen? How many can acknowledge that you have made decisions because of the unknown? I don't know what's going to happen, so this is the most... I've often, I've counseled women that have been in an abusive relationship, and that's a terrible, terrible thing, and I have made provisions. You know, my wife and I have driven them to a safe place and taken their children and given them food and taken groceries and done a lot of things to help them, but I, I receive a call a few days later that they've gone back with this individual. And I'm just at the, my wit's end. I'm pulling my hair out, and I'm saying, you know, what is going on? Uh, uh, he, he just, that individual just about beat you to death. I'm not sure I understand what is going on here. And there is a psychological here. I'm not trying to make light of any of that. I'm not, not saying that. But it, you... It, the known is more favorable than the unknown. If you have a fear that you're going to be by yourself, you have a fear that who is going to provide for you, you have a fear where am I going to live and what am I going to do and how am I going to make it, and, and all that fear starts overwhelming you, and so uh, that, uh, you decide that you're going to stay in that bad situation because it's, it's a known, it's a known quantity, yeah, he, he's not a good guy, and, and he might come home and do this, that, and the other, but le at least I know what's going to happen, I, I have an understanding, the fear of the unknown will cause you to not make good decisions, and here we look at these, these, uh, these two individuals so far that have made very bad or poor decisions, um, because of fear. Fear it controls us. I, I've told the, often told the story that I, when I was a boy, I walked to school, 
um, by myself, and uh, uh, there, <laughs> this one area had this, these people that didn't keep their dog chained up or inside of a fence, and so uh, that dog had, uh, I had made some, I had beat feet from that dog. <laughs> I mean, I had, uh, I, I, the, there wasn't a coach there to clock me, but I had been running pretty fast, <laughs> books and all. <laughs> and, uh, you know, out of fear, I would go two blocks this way and two blocks that way. I didn't, you know, school was just a direct shot over here, but I would go way out of my way because of a fear that I was going to meet that dog. I, you say, well, it's irrational. Yeah, it is irrational. The dog wasn't that big, but, you know, I wasn't that big. You know, I weighed 75 pounds, if that, <laughs> dripping wet. <laughs> that was probably a stretch, too. And fear will cause you to make bad decisions in living for God. Let's look at one more individual here. His name is Felix, Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24. And I'm not saying that it's easy to overcome fear. I'm not making light. I'm not saying it's just a mind over matter. I'm not saying that if you have been living in fear for a long time, you can just, as easy as flipping a switch, you, suddenly you're living in faith. I'm not saying that. Because I will tell you that that's, it's not that easy. Amen? Amen? It takes, sometimes you take two steps forward and one step back. Sometimes you take steps back and you don't step, take steps forward. But if, if you have a determination, that's why I talked about Abraham first. He had a determination that God had given him a promise and that even though he was 99 years of age, he was going to have a son. I don't know how it's going to happen, God, but here I am, 99, and, and my wife, she is 90, and so you said that we're going to have a son. You gave me that promise. So you're going to have to do something, God, because we're beyond the years of bearing children, Lord. Amen? Amen. The other individual I want to look at here is in Acts chapter 24, and we will start reading it at verse 24. After certain days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, history tells us that Felix was used to taking bribes. And the country, uh, Judea, was in a constant state of turmoil because he was constantly juggling factions, uh, whoever could pay him more for the decisions that he made. And um, this caused a lot of turmoil on the land. And so here he comes with his wife, and he sent for Paul, and he hears him concerning the faith in Christ, verse 25. And as he reasoned, as Paul reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled. Now here's a man who's used to dealing with people who are dishonest. He knows a dishonest... Uh, you know, they say a con knows a con. They hang out with each other. A liar knows a liar. You know, because they're familiar spirits. And here's a man that's used to dealing with people who are dishonest. 
The scripture says that he trembles and answered Paul, go thy way for this time when I have a convenient season, I'll call for you. In other words, I'm concerned about my spiritual safety right now. In verse 26, he hoped also that money should have been given him from Paul. So he was hoping that Paul would provide him with a bribe. That he might lose him, wherefore he sent for him the more often, or the oftener, as the King James says here, and communed with him. So he really had an ulterior motive in why he was sending for Paul. He was hoping to get uh, a bribe, but Paul, every time he spoke, it was like uh, I, I see people, they seem to want to be scared today. How many, how many believe that people really want to be frightened and scared? Uh, you, almost every other movie is about something scary. Uh, the, a lot of the books produced today have a theme that is a whole horror theme. So uh, there, it must be uh, a sense that people want to be scared. It maybe is some type of excitement. And so this is the, the uh, gist that I get from Felix. He keeps calling for Paul. He hears the message of, that Paul is preaching of righteousness temperance and judgment to come, things that are going to come. And after two years, Porcius Festus came to Felix's room, and Felix, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. Decisions based on fear. Now, I, I, I really want to help us in that um, these decisions based on fear, you can break the cycle. Amen. You can break the cycle. Breaking the cycle, uh, deter you determine one step at a time. And let's go back to Abraham in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 12 here. Let's look at verse 14. And it came to pass that when Abram was coming to Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman, that she was very fair. And the princes also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh. They're just making note. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And he entreated Abram well for her sake. He thinks that she's his sister. And he had sheep and oxen and he asses and men servants and maidservants and she asses and camels. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Now, the Scripture doesn't really uh, give us the details how that Pharaoh found out. But it came out that... that, uh, Pharaoh, that Abraham, Abram, and Sarah were husband and wife. God was on Abram's side. Now here's where I want to make note to you. Even though you fail, God did not fail to look out for Abram. Here, it, it, I just, 
even how many, and we all can raise both hands, both feet and all the hands, fingers and toes on our, you failed and you felt like a miserable failure and you said to yourself, I, I don't ever, I can't ever be right in the sight of God again. And we've all said that. I, this is, you know, that was the most boneheaded thing I could have done and why did I do that? And so I've been a failure. And I'm sure that Abram is got this secret struggle going on that he has lied, and now the truth is going to be found out about him. But God all along is looking out for Abram. He knows Abram's weakness, and he is trying to help him overcome this dependence on fear. You know, you can become dependent on fear. Because it becomes a way of life. And he's trying to help him overcome this dependence on fear. And scripture says, what is this that thou hast done unto me? Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why saidest thou she is my sister? So I might have taken her to me to wife. Now therefore, behold thy wife. Take her and go thy way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him. And they sent him away and his wife. And all that he had, he had been blessed. But verse 17, as the Lord plagued Pharaoh in his house, with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. God is looking out for you right now. You've made a lot of decisions. We have, we have made a lot of decisions out of fear. But if you will allow God to work on your behalf. We used to sing a song, victory, victory shall be mine if I hold my peace and let the Lord fight my battles. Now, I used to think that if I hold my peace, if I didn't say anything, uh, that God would fight my battles. But uh, let's look at it like this. If I don't make a decision based on fear, but I make a decision based on what God would do in my life, how much more will I be blessed? Amen. God blessed Abram even though he made a wrong decision. And here's the key. He was consistent in serving God even though he had made a bad decision. He didn't stop. Uh, let's, let's bring it down to 21st century terms. He didn't stop coming to church. He didn't stop serving God. He didn't stop reading his Bible. He didn't stop praying. He just kept on, even though he felt like a failure, and God was saying, hey, all along, I'm trying to get you to act in faith rather than fear. Amen. You're, you're dead in the water when you stop attending church, stop praying, stop reading your Bible. Amen. But as long as you hang in there, Amen. Here's the key. As long as you, it's not that, you know, feelings come and feelings go, but God blessed Abram. Abraham did not stop serving God. Amen. Amen. That's key right there. So you decide. Then uh, the second way we can respond is to act in denial. Nothing's happening. <laughs> Nothing's happening. I, I want to look at one individual here in uh, Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter uh, 13. I guess this goes along with uh, the statement I made at the, at the beginning of the Bible study. You've known there's a problem and maybe you thought maybe it'll go away. La, 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 I can't hear you. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew 
Maybe if I just ignore it, it will just disappear. It's like that bill that comes in the mail. and you go. If I sit it on my dresser and ignore it long enough, maybe it'll just, oh, man, I need to do that more often. You know what? I go back there the next day, and it's still sitting there. Yeah, it's going, pay me, pay me, pay me now. <laughs> yeah, file them under T. That doesn't, that doesn't help. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you start getting phone calls if you. <laughs> and here's a man that lived in denial. First Samuel chapter 13. I want, I want to look here. Actually, I want to go uh, up to uh, chapter 15. Verse 15, verse 1, Samuel also uh, said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel how he laid wait for him in the way and when he came up from Egypt. Now, Amalek uh, did some horrible things to the Israelites when they were traveling. And they picked up all, all the weak and the sickly and the children that were kind of trailing along, uh, all that long trail of a group of people. And uh, for weeks and months, they would pick them off kill them, send them into slavery. And the Lord said, I'm, I'm going to get you for that. <clears throat> he said, now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man, woman, infant, and suckling, ox and sheep and camel and ass. And Saul gathered the people together. Amalek, mean, Amalek means blood lickers. It's kind of a disgusting thing, but that's what they were known for. They were a very savage uh, group of people. Uh, and uh, this word actually means that. And Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Tila M, 200,000 footmen and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and weighed weight in the valley. And, and Saul said unto the Kenites, Go depart you down from a, among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them, for ye showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. Let's go down to verse 13. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What meaneth this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. And Samuel said unto Saul, Stay, and I will tell thee what the Lord hath said to me this night. And he said unto him, Say on. And Samuel said, When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee king over Israel. And the Lord sent thee on a journey and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord? But didst fly upon the spoil, didst evil in the sight of the Lord. 
And Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought Agag, the king of the Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoiled sheep and oxen, and the chief of the things which they should have utterly been utterly destroyed to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices and in, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. There's a pretty, pretty um, definitive statement to Saul. I, when I, I look at this passage, and um, Saul blames the people, he said in verse 21, the people took of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen. And Samuel says, hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. So denial, uh, as we see here, that Saul is now living in denial. He has started this this um, walk downward. Samuel says it like this. He said, when you were little in your own sight, verse 17, when thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made head, the head of the tribes of Israel? When you were humble, when you had some humility, God gave you an opportunity. And the Lord sent thee on a journey and said, Go and do this. Denial. Living in denial. I, I we, you know, I uh, was meditating on this passage here today as I was looking at it. And we all know that there are areas of our life that we need to shape up on. Is that, is that an accurate statement? We all know that there are, there are situations and circumstances that we need to improve. We need to get under control. Because denying that they're there won't make them go away. Just like that proverbial bill. It's that, that problem, that, uh, that vice, that, that issue is not going to get better. Uh, I think that... Um, People who have struggled with anger. Have you ever counseled or been around someone who who struggled with anger? And you know it escalates. The the anger just, it starts getting. And then the next thing you know, the the people don't even, they're irrational. They're they're not even rationalizing. It's just everything. They're striking out at everybody. People that have nothing to do with their circumstances. That's what happens when you deny uh, the circumstances in your life. You say, well, I'm just going to manage that. You know, God delivers. He doesn't manage. <laughs> let, me, let me say this again. God delivers. He doesn't manage. 
Manage is a word that we've come up with. You manage your anger. You manage your, your um, addictions. You keep them under control. But God delivers. I don't find anywhere in the scripture where God said, I'll help you manage your lust. <laughs> right? I'll help you manage how much time you spend on the Internet watching pornography. No. God's going to deliver you. He's a delivering. That's the word Jesus saves. That's where the word saves. He saves us. Amen? Did you have your hand, sister? You, you had a question? Oh, you were amening me. Good. Uh, it, it, Jesus saves us and delivers. And if you believe that, you'll receive it. But if you believe that all you can do is manage it, manage it that's all you'll receive. I, I, I really want to, you didn't get on board with me with that. I really want to say it again. If you believe that all I can do is just barely get along, if we'll just get along, we can go along, and, and then that's all you're going to have. But if you'll expect more out of God, the Bible says that Abraham called those things which were not as though they were. He's, and God helped him in this. He changed his name from Abram to Abraham. Abram means high father. Abraham means father of many nations. And so God gave him a name, father of many nations, when he didn't even have a son. How can you be father of many nations? You don't even have one son. You don't even have a child. You don't have a daughter, son, or, or anything. And God is calling you the father of many nations. He's saying to you, you can call those things which are not as though they were. Start speaking them into existence. And that's not mind over matter. Mind over matter denies something is there. Faith says, I acknowledge that there's a problem. And so I'm not going to stay in the problem. I'm going to start speaking to God about the problem and speaking to the problem. Amen? Amen. So that's the difference. And Saul is in complete denial. 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse 6, we see here, that um, how bad it, it, it has gotten for Saul. You know, when, you know when Saul's progression downward started? Does anyone know where the real progression started? Does anyone know, sister? When he, when he disobeyed. This is where his progression, his downward progression. So if you just looked at Saul on that particular day, you wouldn't really see anything different about him. He looked the same. It didn't, he's still the king. He's still everything. But if in the spirit, he was already starting his way down. He was, he was making a mo downward motion. We see this. It, it's really readily uh, visible when, the, uh, when David has accomplished some feats. And the, the girls come in and singing, David, Saul has slain his thousands. But man, you should see David, he's slain his tens of thousands. And it says that that day, David, uh, Saul heard that and said, what are they, they're, they're talking about. I've only slain thousands and David has slain ten thousands. Jealousy starts rising up. Now, 
The Bible says, this is what the Scripture says, that jealousy is as cruel as the grave, meaning it's just like a death. Uh, if you allow jealousy to get a hold of you, be, that's another reason, way to get irrational. And so uh, the, Saul reaches a point in Samuel, 1 Samuel 28 and verse 6. I'm going to read this passage of Scripture here. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, Notice here, the Lord answered him not. Now, that's a bad, sad state of affairs right there. David says it like this after he had committed adultery. He said, Lord, let not your spirit depart from me. And he says in in Psalms, he said, wash me with hyssop. Don't let your spirit. I know I've been bad. I've not done good. I've been a murderer. I'm a horrible person. This is what he's saying. But don't let your spirit pull, please, God. I don't ever find Saul saying that. I don't find him calling and say, God, I, I really need your spirit. But we see here that the writer says that, and when, Paul in, and when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not neither by dreams nor by Urim nor by the prophets. Sister... Urim, that was what the priest wore on the uh, on the on their chest, and had those little stones, and those were those were uh, those colored stones were for prophecy, and to hear from the the Lord. So he tried various ways to hear from the Lord. He tried by you know people who were used in dreams, and they said, no, no, I, God's not speaking to me, not about you, and neither by Urim. Nothing was happening. Said that the lights would light up those uh, rocks, those stones on the breastplate of the uh, high priest. They would light up, but uh, they were dull, in, in fact. And nor by prophets, the, those who were using prophecies. But see how low that Saul gets here. He says, then Saul said unto his servant, seek me a woman that hath a familiar spirit that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said unto him, Behold, there's a woman that hath a familiar spirit at the end door. And Saul disguised himself and put on other raiment. And he went and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, I pray thee, divine unto me by the familiar spirit. And bring me up, bring me him up whom I shall name unto thee. He's going to keep it secret till the last minute. And the woman said unto him, Behold, thou knowest what Saul hath done, how he hath cut off those who have, that have familiar spirits and the wizards out of the land. Wherefore, then layest thou a snare for my life to cause me to die? You're trying to trap me. And Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, He used the Lord's name, saying, As the Lord liveth, there shall no punishment happen to thee for this thing. Then said the woman, Whom shall I bring up unto thee? And he said, Bring me up Samuel. Now here is a man who has been anointed by God. But he has lived in denial and God is saying, Okay, if you won't deal with a situation, I'm going to let you go your own way, do your own thing. I'm moving on. Amen? You know, God will move on after a while. He's long-suffering. If you... 
You should think every day that you hear the voice of the Lord. You feel the prodding of God in your heart. Amen. It's a terrible place to be where you don't hear the voice of God or you don't feel the tugging of your soul and your heart to worship God. And the things you will be inclined to do to reach out to God because God is no longer talking to you. To me, that's a horrible place. I don't know what your ideal of hell is. I, I really have no idea what hell's like. It, uh, but I, I've kind of pictured my own imagination in mind is that even if you are an unbeliever, you still have the presence of God around you. I, I, I've, I've often said this about space, how I, I'm a little afraid of it. You know why I'm afraid of it? Because there are no people out there. <laughs> That's why. Amen? That's why I'm afraid of space. You say, well, there's nothing out there, yeah? Uh, there's no atmosphere out there that I can breathe. There are, uh, there's, I'm just a, I, and I picture that as hell being, God being removed and I'm just floating through that hot space without God. I don't know, that's my mind. That's, you might uh, think of Dante's Inferno. I don't know what you think of. But I'm thinking of being without the presence of God. To me, that's terrible. To me, that's horrible. I, I, don't, I don't want that on me. I don't want that on you. Amen? And here is, is what happens when you live in a state of denial. Eventually, God will say, okay, if I can't reach you, then you have at it. Maybe you can reach yourself. Amen? So to speak. I don't know if God would use that same language, but he's, he's turning you loose. The Bible says he will turn some people over to a reprobate mind. What's a reprobate mind? Where they believe those things, they think that they themselves are a God, and they make their own decisions. Amen. Denial. And then the third aspect that I want to look at is trust. Trust. So we've looked at fear. We've looked at denial. And now I want to lead us into a place where if you're living in fear, if you've walked in fear, if you've, some people are very fearful. Uh, There's some things I'm not afraid of. Uh, uh, some people don't, my wife, I couldn't hardly convince her to, I like the ocean, I like to look at it, I like to get in it, I like to go under the water. And uh, the, really, there's a lot of more sights under the water than there's on top of the water. I mean, there's fish, there's the coral reef, there's, it's a lot of beauty under there. Yeah. Sharks, yeah. You know, I've been this close, Sister, Sister Barb, I've been this close to many sharks, this close. They swim right by. I don't know. I watched them, they watched me. I, I wasn't, a, I was cautious. I, you know, I'm not going to say that I was just poking them or anything. <laughs> was I afraid? Not necessarily. I was, I was cautious, you know, caution and fear are two different things. But I, my, my wife, she doesn't like to get into the water. I tried to convince her. I said, babe, it'll just be you and me. We can go in the water. I, I'll show you everything. It won't be that deep. And, and no, 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 no. I will. <laughs> We were out wading in the water. It must have been up to our knees, right? It was about that deep, maybe deep, maybe up to our waist. And we were right by the jetty, and uh, the kids were small then. And it was all six of us, and we, we were playing. It was a beautiful sunny day, and 
And I, I don't know, I wasn't paying attention. I was playing with one of the kids, splashing them or something. I don't know what we were doing. And all of a sudden, uh, my wife took off. I mean, she was rawr, charging out of the water. And she was re- literally yelling, rawr, shark! I don't know, whatever she was saying. I don't know, she's making noise. And I'm like, what, what, what? You know, I guess a shark would have eaten me. <laughs> but she said she saw a big gray mass. What? It was, <laughs> I said, what happened to the motherly instinct? You left the kids and me out in the water. <laughs> it's every man for themselves. <laughs> I said, now I know where I stand. <laughs> I love you to the end. Yeah, this is the end. <laughs> She said, I saw a gray, and it, uh, a shark is gray, so we were gone. <laughs> so uh, so I, I decided I wasn't going to let my boys uh, get afraid of the water. So I had that. They were 10 years old, and I, I bought them diving lessons. And uh, they learned how to dive, wear a scuba tank on their back, and, and went down 100 feet under the water. That's what you have to go down to be a PADI certified scuba diver. <laughs> and uh, anyhow, trust. I'll never forget the first time a sister. <laughs> who, who, my son Jesse told all about that. What's that? I'm sorry. <laughs> That's probably true. <laughs> They were pretty thin back then. <laughs> there is pressure underwater. <laughs> what was that, Sister Debbie? <laughs> no, but <laughs> yeah, there are. That, that's that's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's exactly right. You know, every three feet is another atmospheric pressure as you go down. And uh, you think when you get down there that if you have to go to the bathroom, you can just go. (laughs) It just doesn't work like that. (laughs) Uh, There's a pressure in and there's a pressure out. (laughs) You ain't going anywhere. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And that's the truth, yeah. So the first time I rented a, a wetsuit, I said, has anyone ever went to the bathroom in here? He said, we're not telling. <laughs> he said, if they ever say that they haven't, well, they're lying. <laughs> he said, it wasn't down there. It was up here when they were on the ship, though. <laughs> and how did we get off on that? <laughs> uh, I, I th- that's right. We were talking about the ocean. Trust. So, you know, really, uh, when we, uh, it took me three days to get certified and, and uh, all the, the exams, and we, the first day you were in a pool, and me and three other, two other people, and the instructor, he's telling us what to do, and, and uh, you're learning to take your tank off and take, and he said, there's one rule you have to memorize, one rule and this is important. Diving is a pretty inherently, it's not a dangerous sport, but that you can 
it's like riding a motorcycle, like doing it. You can, if you, if you take advantage, it becomes dangerous. If you ride wheelies all the time, you're eventually going to flip that thing over. That's why sitting in a barber chair, eventually get your hair cut, you know, if you sit in a barber chair. (laughs) And uh, so he said, there's one rule that you cannot break. And he said, I want you to memorize this. And I thought, no, this is going to be a big rule. He said, here's the rule. Panic kills. He said, panic kills. He said, if you panic... He said, uh, you can't just take that regulator out of your mouth and take a deep breath. You're going to die. He said, you, got to, you have to slow yourself down and think, what am I going to do to get myself out of this, this situation I've got? I had some friends that wanted to go cave diving. I said, nope, I'm not doing that. I said, uh, I like to be able when to see the top of the water. And if I need to go up, I'll go up. And we'll deal uh, with uh, the problems of going immediate, up immediately. I said, but uh, in a cave, I, you run out of air. There's no place to go up. I said, I like, I like adventure, but I don't like <laughs> that kind of adventure. Amen. I did go to a, a large, there was a cave that you could dive in and have a sign that's the size of a billboard. It's at eye level. And having a skull and a crossbones there, it says, Pete, you can die here, and it tells um, how many have died up to that point, because you've become, it's, it's just total blackness, and if you become disoriented, uh, there's no way to out, uh, because you get panicked. Trust, back to trust. I think the first time that I ever, uh, the, and the instructor, we're standing, I'm standing in the water, so nothing's going to happen, I'm just standing there on the bottom of the pool, the water's about up to here. And he said, I want you to put the regulator in your mouth, and I want you to start breathing just through your mouth, close off your nose. And he said, you're going to breathe through that regulator. And then he said, when we get comfortable, we're going we're to squat down on our knees where our head's underwater, and we're going to take a deep breath with that regulator in the mouth. It's very funny that my body kept saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, <laughs> don't do it. And that was very, very odd for me to have my head and my whole body underwater and take a, and then all the rush of bubbles come out, and it was uh, unusual. But it was, it was all trust. I was watching, uh, watching and listening to the instructor. He said, I dive, I, I've been down 800 times last year. Um, he said, I do it several times a day. Um, Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 21, verses 1 through 2. Coming to a close here. Genesis 21. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived... And bear Abraham a son in his old age at the set time which God had spoken to him. Amen. Trust. Trust. You know, the biggest struggle in when God tells you he's going to do something, the biggest struggle is waiting for God to do it. That's the biggest 
struggle. Because when it's like waiting for Christmas. You see the presents under the tree. Oh, let me, okay, this, this popped in my head. How many, when you were a kid, had the presents under the tree and you snuck out there and opened some of your presents and then you retaped them back, you know? <laughs> I see all you, yeah, we've all done that. <laughs> yeah. Why? You just couldn't wait. It's only five days or six days or whatever it was. But that seemed like an eternity. And when God tells you something, here's the danger of you giving up and say, God's not, I, obviously God's not going to do it because he hasn't done it yet. That's a danger. Trust. Trust that what God says he's going to do, he's going to do it. And just keep holding on to the promise. I want to go to, uh, real quickly before we come to a close, is the book of Joshua, chapter 1. Verse 1, now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying. Now, when God gives you something, he's always going to give you more than you can handle. Let me say it like this. God's always going to give you a bigger job than you've been used to doing. He's always going to do that. He's going to give you more than you can handle. And here, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, said, Moses is dead, and now arise, go over to this Jordan, and all this people unto the land which I will give to you. He said, I'm, I'm putting you in charge. And little Joshua says, me? Me? I'm not Moses. Well, no, you're not Moses. But I'm putting you in charge. I'm... I'm elevating you, Joshua. And what does he say in verse 9? Have not I commanded thee, what does he say? Be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. Amen. This is a verse of Scripture you should have underlined in your Bible. When God gives you something, He's always going to give you a bigger task than you think that you can perform in your mind. Amen. And then the last and final scripture in the book of Daniel, chapter 3. Trust. Daniel, chapter 3. That at the time you hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore at that time when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and all the kinds of music, all the people, the nations, and the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Wherefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. They spake and said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Thou 
O king, hast made a decree that every man that shall hear the sound. Verse 11, And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, that he should be cast in the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And there are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. He asked him if it was true. They said, yeah, that's true. Verse 16, they said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. In other words, we're not concerned. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. I mean, that's pretty strong. They had trust in God. They had trust in God whether God performed what they thought he might perform. Or if he didn't, they still weren't going to bow down. If he does or if he doesn't, I'm not bowing down. In other words, whatever, it, this, is not, uh, this is not situational ethics. In other words, if God does, then I won't bow down. <laughs> If he doesn't show up, then I guess I'll have to bow down. But they said, no, we are not bowing down. If he delivers us, okay. If he doesn't deliver us, okay. We're still not doing it. Amen. Trust in God. Now, this is where God shines brightest in our life, is when we trust him when things look the worst. Amen. Have you ever had a situation in your life where it looked horrible, looked the worst? Amen. Trusting God. I'm going to stop right there tonight looking at the three decisions that we can make. We can make a decision in fear, make a decision in denial, not making a decision, which is making a decision. And number three, we can trust God to make the right decision that he is going to work it out no matter the circumstances. Amen. Let's stand to our feet.